Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It fails both the morality test, but also the foreign policy test. I don't believe it's necessary or useful for us to look the other way when countries do abhorrent things. And again, we can multitask with them. We can still have elements of a normal relationship, but they ought to hear the criticism when they do unacceptable things, and they ought to pay a price for that. Never a shortage of headlines to discuss with the veteran diplomat who is now the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is ours for the hour, so do stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me from New York is Richard Haas, president of the Council of Foreign Relations, a veteran diplomat. He was a principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell under the second Bush administration in the early 90s. In the first Bush administration, Dr. Haas was senior director for Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. How are you, sir? Doing just fine. Thank you. Which title do I use? Uh, ambassador? Doctor? <laughs> sir? Even, what would you prefer? You uh, Rich, many hats. Richard will do. <laughs> Richard, where do I even start with you? I always imagine Richard Haas at cocktail parties or in New York or on the subway. People accost you. There's no paucity ever of, of volatile headlines in the news. You could say that this time is it, it feels so different. Was it ever this crazy? What is front and center top of mind for you right now? Is it Iran? Is it the trade war with China? Is it North Korea agitating against an, you know, in, in, its, in its region? Where do we start? Well, the short answer to your question is yes, it's all of those things. When I used to work at the White House, uh, I was responsible for the, the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. This was during the years where Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And I used to say that my, my job goal was to make the Middle East boring. And I, I failed miserably, as history uh, shows. And you know, I look forward to the time when my business wasn't quite so uh, busy when uh, foreign policy and international relations didn't have quite so much going on. Clearly, though, that's not going to uh, happen. And what I, I actually think, to be serious for a second, is that it's not just that there's a lot going on. You mentioned a handful of crises, and one could have thrown in a few more, including Venezuela. But it's that the, the size of the crises is, is potentially big. And we're also dealing with such things as the revival of great power competition or challenges such as how do we regulate uh, cyberspace, or what do we do about climate change. So we're at a moment of history where it's impossible not to feel that uh, a lot of history is actually taking place. So let's start with my country of birth, Iran. And this has now been uh, an ongoing grudge match and with, with various escalations for 40 years. Is it, is it a, a leap to say that we've gotten Iran wrong for the better part of 40 years? I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded of, of Ronald Reagan sending the Ayatollah a, a, a birthday cake, cake and a, a, a Bible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Is I that the ultimate metaphor? Uh, yeah, that didn't work out so well. Uh, <laughs> look, I think at times we've been 
perhaps unrealistically positive or optimistic about what could be worked out. And we have to keep in mind that this is a radical regime. It's got this uh, unique fusion of, of the political and the religious. It's, it's, it's ideological in the extreme. And it runs a foreign policy that I would call imperial in the sense that it, it seeks to shape much of the region in, it, in its image. Iran is not a satisfied country. It's, got a, it's a big country with a big uh, foreign policy. This administration has a very different approach, and rather than trying to win them over, seems more interested in grinding them down. Indeed, uh, I think their real goal is regime change, to essentially undo the results of the revolution that brought the Ayatollah Khomeini to power in 1979. And even when the Secretary of State, Mr. Pompeo, talks about it, he he uses the idea that we've got 12 policy goals, but if you added them all up, it's tantamount to to regime change. And my sense is that we're not going to transform them into something we're comfortable with, and we're not going to be able to overthrow them. So the real question, which uh, this administration seems so far at least unwilling to to contemplate, is how do we work out a, a relationship that we can live with, with Iran. What is it uh, is realistic to ask of them? What is it that we might be, be prepared to either offer to them to bring it about or to do to them if we see things we don't like? And I, I just don't see a serious strategy that's emerged for dealing with Iran. You know, very few people remark on the fact that it seems like every year that starts with a nine seems to have a, a massive incident, be it 1979, 1989 in Iran. And then 1999, you saw those student protests and the crackdown and that era of, of Khatami, President Khatami kind of dimming and then the conservatives consolidating power again. And let's not forget 2009, mm-hmm. that very tense moment in the wake of the Obama tour of the Middle East and the speech. What can a U.S. president or a secretary of state or a national security advisor say outside of you know, we stand behind you, students. I mean, okay, yeah, you stand behind the students, but unless you're willing to send in planes or, or have a no-fly zone or do something akin to maybe what you did in Libya, that all kind of, that's kind of useless. I mean, talk is cheap. Well, what we did in Libya wasn't good for Libya or for ourselves, so that ought not to be a model for anything. I think you can be consistent about talking about human rights and a hope for greater democracy in Iran, It's awkward, though, if we single out Iran and leave out a dozen or more Arab countries in the region where we seem not to be particularly interested in in promoting those sorts of of goals. Uh, But I I don't think we can change the fundamentals there, and I don't think that ought to be the principal goal of American foreign policy. I I would argue the focus of American foreign policy, not exclusive, but the, the emphasis, ought to be on changing the foreign policies of others. And in the case of Iran, that would mean limiting what it does around the region to, 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 to shape the region in its image. And we ought to try to prevent the emergence of an Iranian nuclear program, a ballistic missile program, and so forth. The idea that we are going to fundamentally shape the, the nature of Iranian politics, that seems to me to be unlikely. It would be good if it happened. It would be good if the current regime were evolved in ways that were more tolerant towards their own people, more respectful of human rights, less selective in their embrace of uh, anything democratic. But I, I think we have to accept that is that's a reach. But there are things that we can do in terms of pushing back about uh, Iran's acquisition of power and its use of power. Richard, what was the tipping point, I sense, when suddenly Saudi Arabia saw kind of 
approximate friendship in Israel and Egypt and kind of consolidating and building this firewall against Iran's regional hegemony. Something changed in the past five or six years. Was it the Arab Spring that that suddenly, you know, Bibi and the kingdom and Cairo were always on the phone together and Iran outside of, you know, the traditional OPEC relationship with Saudi Arabia was the biggest threat in the region, the biggest existential concern for Saudi Arabia? It's interesting. Uh, you may be right. I actually thought it was more the aftermath of the Iraq War, the 2003 Iraq War. And one of the predictable but unintended consequences of that war was that we removed the greatest buffer and constraint on Iranian power, which was Saddam Hussein's Sunni-led Iraq. And in its place, you had an, uh, an Iraq that was increasingly dominated by Iran. Uh, and Iran obviously used the advantages of geography being next door and the fact that a plurality of Iraq's popula population is, is Shia. And that war fundamentally changed the power balance in the, in the region. So if I had to choose a, a turning point, it was that. And as you look then over the, the last now, what, decade, decade and a half, I think a lot of things flow from the fact that we created a Middle East in which Iran, in many ways, uh, was the most powerful local country. Israel obviously is powerful, but it's pro precluded from participating in certain dynamics in the region. Egypt has its hands full and then some simply with being Egypt and this enormous population it really can't support. Turkey has its own problems and is somewhat geographically off to the side. So suddenly Iran, both directly and through various Shia populations in Lebanon, uh, through the Alawites in Syria and so forth, found itself with greater opportunity than it had uh, ever had in the modern period, and it took advantage of it. Now, what on Israel and the United States? If you told me as recently as five years ago that the embassy would have been declared in Jerusalem, which has kind of become a, a visiting site even for Western evangelicals now and and Orthodox Jews around the world, and then the United Israel would kind of quasi autonomously annex the Golan Heights, I would have imagined rioting in the streets across the Arab Middle East, across Iran, across the proxy regions of Iran. And we really didn't see that this time. And there's something very remarkable about this relationship between Netanyahu and Trump. Let me unpack that in a couple of things. Why hasn't there been more reaction in the region? I think the region has partially grown weary with the Palestinian issue. It's been around for, for decades. They've got big, bigger, they've, essentially most countries in the region have bigger fish to fry. Hmm. They've either got challenges internally, or in the case of the Sunni Arab world, they're much more concerned about Iran. They might be more concerned in, about Syria, about the civil war there, or about Yemen. Uh, plus the Arab world, if you recall, was extremely unhappy with the Palestinian reaction in 1990 to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. The Palestinians That's were right. cheering for Saddam. And the Saudis and others, the Kuwaitis, and, uh, needless to say, did not appreciate that. They've neither forgiven it nor forgotten about it. Mm. So I, I think the Arab world, uh, not entirely, uh, has though distanced itself from the from the the Palestinians. They can't they can't distance themselves completely or forget about it simply because this still has a tug on the thinking and political behavior of their own population on the so-called Arab street. But I think but, but you're right. Your, your basic point is right. The lack of reaction to several things Israel has done shows to me that most of the region has moved on and they've grown almost inured to this, uh, 
to this challenge. Let me ask you, do you look at Syria, I mean, borderline failed state Syria at this point, post-civil war, post-catastrophe Syria, as uh, an Iranian proxy? That it's right there on the border of Israel? And I, and I wonder if it is, would Netanyahu have preferred the enemy you know in Bashar al-Assad versus an amorphous kind of ISIL-like control of Syria? I think it's too strong to say that it's Iranian proxy. Uh, you got a lot of outsiders with a large role, Iran and Russia, obviously, Turkey to some extent, the United States still has a, a hand there. You have de- autonomous regions within the country. You've got the Kurds. You still have some ISIS presence. Uh, but Iran, Iran is one of the winners, and the biggest winner of all in the sense of the perpetuation of his power is Bashar al-Assad. The problem for him is he still is not able to exert power over Mm. significant chunks of his country. And as you say, uh, big parts of his country have been totally, uh, totally decimated. It's interesting. You you, you raised the point about the Israelis. There was a a real question in Israel that was debated openly about what was the preferred outcome when the Arab Spring and the civil war uh, began in, in, in Syria. And my guess is that a lot of Israelis would have preferred what they had before all this began. You had a much more predictable situation, a much more stable uh, uh, situation with the the Golan Heights. You didn't you didn't have war and you didn't have formal peace, but you had a status quo that was pretty stable and predictable. And you had very little uh, outside presence. You didn't have a Russian presence. You didn't have an Iranian presence. So my guess is if Israel could wind the clock back to 2012, for example, my guess is most Israelis would jump at it. Was was someone like Bashar al-Assad ever offered a, a grand bargain? Kind of listen, stop, stop hesitating. We'll consider giving Golan back. Stop blowing kisses at Iran or Hezbollah or doing nefarious things in Beirut. Sure, there were many times where the Israelis and the and the Syrians came close, and at the end of the day, neither Bashar al-Assad or his father Hafez al-Assad would would sign the deal. They were, the Israelis offered them ninety nine percent of what they were looking for, and they just wouldn't they wouldn't take it. And my hunch is they were worried about the internal reaction or the the regional reaction, and decided they would do better by keeping the wound open. But uh, but I, and again, I think both countries have uh, have paid a price for it. But no, the Syrians had their opportunities and blew it. And and finally, actually, to take it back to Iran, it seems like, uh, you know, when we talk to relatives over there, there seems to be an idea that there always will be a grand bargain on the table. There's a best alternative to negotiated outcome is somebody will whisper behind the scenes, whether it's from the IRGC or from the Supreme Leader, that if we stop misbehaving in the region and if we kind of end our, our you know, extra-regional designs, will you normalize trade with us? Will you bring McDonald's to Tehran? Will you sell us airplane parts and the refinery technology that we've desperately starved for 40 years. Is it your impression, especially when I look at a Trump as a dealmaker and his willingness to do this with North Korea and other regimes, is that potentially still on the table? I think what you describe is is too broad. You're not going to get the Iranians to essentially shut down their foreign policy of trying to expand their influence in the, the region. I don't think, though, it's inconceivable to imagine a a broader nuclear deal, where essentially we would expand what it covers and we we would expand it to cover ballistic missiles as well as nuclear materials. We would extend the period that it would be in place for, 
many of its provisions are due to, to expire over the next uh, decade or so. And in return, Iran would get uh, certain economic benefits. I do not think something like that is beyond, uh, beyond imagination, be it for this administration or the, or the next administration. But Dr. Haas, why, why do so many people say that that's out of question for the Islamic regime, that it's anathema to them existentially to kind of become more of an inward-facing China totalitarian economy-first regime? I don't see how anyone could say it's out of the question for them since in 2015 they signed the previous nuclear deal. They obviously showed that they're willing to sign agreements that limit some of their capabilities and options in return for various uh, economic and political benefits. They did it then. My guess is they do it, they would do it again in the future if the terms were to their were adequate for them. Look, like all regimes, uh, particularly revolutionary regimes, their principal desire is to continue in uh, in business. And uh, after four decades, they want to be there for another four decades. And they've got to worry about domestic dissatisfaction against the pushback in the streets. Probably a significant chunk of the population, maybe even a majority, is not wildly enthusiastic about this regime, either its repression at home, its economic isolation, the fact that they're spending so much on their foreign policy and Iranians at home seem to be paying a price for it. So my guess is they would, they would take a deal if, uh, if it were offered to them. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Haas, if you could take me to China, uh, this kind of slow-mo trade war and escalation going on between Beijing and, and Washington, and the market seems to have digested it at this point, that maybe it's a lot of bluster. Maybe you see extended deadlines and brinksmanship and whatnot. It used to terrify uh, investors a lot more in the emerging markets, much more than it, it, it has. I think it's, it's become kind of embedded as almost a new normal in investor thinking now. Let's take a step back here. There's widespread dissatisfaction on the trade front with China uh, since it entered the World Trade Organization nearly two decades ago. Many people hope, perhaps unrealistically, that it would lead to a more open China, both in the economic as well as the political sense, and neither has happened, certainly not in the political sense. China, if anything, is more closed. And in the economic sense, what what China has done is essentially cherry-picked its economic interactions with the rest of the world in ways of uh, helping its own competitive uh, position. So I think what Trump, President Trump has done is essentially said uh, no more. He's called them uh, called them out on it, and I think I, I would argue that's been widely uh, agreed to in the United States and in much of the rest of the world that trades with China. Where people disagree is over how he's going about then trying to do something about it, and I think there's a real question about these negotiations, which is uh, what is it realistic to demand? China, for example, is not going to change its economic model. They're not going to phase out the role of uh, the state in supporting uh, large enterprises deemed essential for the uh, economy and the society. They'll probably agree to stop stealing various types of intellectual property and technology, but uh, seeing that any such agreement honored uh, is is a long shot. My guess is they would be more than willing to increase their purchases of Western uh, agricultural products. Uh, My guess is they would be willing to lower tariff and non-tariff barriers, all of which is to say I think there is a deal to be had. And the real question is uh, how ambitious uh, must it be in order to satisfy us? And then how do you oversee its implementation? Because if the past is prologue, China will not always deliver what it promises. 
Have we seen a hard landing in China in the kind of post-WTO period? I think, what was that, 2001? Yeah. Have we seen a hard landing? No. And, but clearly the regime there, the, the and President Xi Jinping, is worried about it. Uh, my own view uh, is that one of the reasons he's cracked down as hard as he has is he understands that the period uh, or the era of high levels of economic growth is over that China faces much uh, lower levels of economic growth growing forward. To some extent, this was and is inevitable, given the size and maturation of the, of the economy there. But he also understands that China, because it's so integrated with the world, can't be totally insulated from the world in terms of uh, recessions, that China does face certain now uh, tech you know, concerns about technology, and it's going to be blocked off from doing certain things. And my guess is he's, he's worried. He understands uh, it may not be a hard landing, but China's going to hit some serious speed bumps in the years it's ahead. And the, the Communist Party has essentially kept its position, its pride of place in China, not for ideological reasons, but largely uh, it's gained, it's derived its, legit, its legitimacy from its uh, handling of uh, the economy, from delivering relatively high levels of economic growth to more and more Chinese over the, the years. And, and since he can't take that for granted going forward, I think he has, uh, he's increased the degree of government control over the society. That's the real cosmic question I ask of, of emerging market strategists, of investors. Of, we've had Jim Chanos, the China skeptic, on the show before. Who, who gets hurt more in this kind of, you know, this idea of mutually assured destruction between China and the United States. For example, take the iPhone. Mm -hmm. If you slap tariffs on the iPhone, is that hurting the hundreds of thousands of Chinese supply chain workers much more than it's hurting the price, you know, inelastic U.S. consumer? The answer is it's hurting both sides. The question is also who's better positioned to handle the hurt. And you know, there's no way of knowing until we have a, a test case. It's not simply some frustrated consumers uh, on this side, it would, but it would have all sorts of implications for the American economy. And if we end up, uh, these tariffs we put into place on China, if they stay in place, we're going to see a real slowdown to the economy. We're not just going to see a, a large correction to the stock market, but we'll see a broader uh, slowdown. So we will pay a price for it, and China will pay a price for it uh, with reduced exports. So this uh, trade wars, like most wars, uh, you know, the president said famously or infamously, that uh, they're easy to win. Well, it turns out they're difficult to win. The only thing that's easy about them is they're easy to start. That's right. And I do, I do really want to, you know, check that in the in the WTO period or even post Tiananmen Square, there has not been a one hard recession in China. The country's had almost continuous near ten percent growth for the better part of twenty five years. Though again, it's slowed down. I think now it's probably the official numbers are around six percent. Most people I know who are experts on the Chinese economy think it's lower than that. And, and, and even whatever the numbers are, one of the reasons the numbers are don't tell you a whole lot is that one big reason for the growth of the massive government infusions of funds into these state-owned enterprises, that the government essentially won't let the economy slow uh, below a certain point because they're worried about the political instability that could follow. How long can that continue? I mean, I understand if the U.S. and Western consumers is hail enough, if emerging markets are, are, are buying things, are using China as the manufacturer of choice, you could keep that furnace running 24-7. But that, that's got to stop at some point. You can't just manufacture that demand uh, from, from state-owned enterprises. 
True, but China could continue to sell to the world so long as it has markets. Uh, it's quite possible that some of its Belt and Road Initiative is designed to make sure that it has a broader demand around the uh, around the world. It could also, one of its goals is clearly to increase demand domestically. That one of the challenges for China, but it's probably a necessary one for them to meet, is to slightly shift demand for Chinese uh, production uh, away from exports and towards the, the home market to get Chinese people to, to spend more. And if they can do that, then it gives them much more of a cushion, plus it would increase the, the quality of life, the standard of living at home. So far, at least, there's been some resistance uh, to that. People have saved more than they've uh, spent. But I don't think that's inconceivable that over the next decade or two, to a degree, China could substitute domestic demand for international demand. Uh, take me to Korea and the peninsula there. We, you see this ship seizure by the United States. It seems to be like a routine uh, seizure of a huge North Korean cargo ship involved in banned coal transports. But at the same time, there's a bit of a, 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 a cross-planetary bromance between Donald Trump and, and Kim. They've met a couple of times. They have designs on some sort of grand deal. It, it hits bumps in the road. You see a, a prolonged period of silence a kind of a courtship, well, maybe I will meet you, maybe I won't meet with you. Uh, a couple of missiles are fired just to keep it interesting. Uh, what is your read on this when you're asked about it? <laughs> uh, look, this administration inherited a difficult situation with North Korea where for decades they have posed not just a conventional military threat to the South and to the U.S. forces, the nearly 30,000 U.S. forces stationed there to Japan and others, but also, obviously, they've built up a, a nuclear and missile uh, inventory and various attempts at using diplomacy and sanctions over the last few decades failed to do much about it. This administration came in threatening uh, war. It obviously, though, didn't want to make good on that threat because any war on the Korean Peninsula would be devastating for everybody, uh, beginning with South Korea. And so as a result, what they did was then they switched, I guess you'd say, to a policy of diplomacy backed by uh, uh, the imposition of tough sanctions and then the promise of sanctions relief. And they got the Chinese, the Russians, and pretty much everybody else to, to go along with that. The, the only problem is that North Korea has zero interest in giving up its, uh, all of its nuclear weapons. It sees those as essential. It saw what happened to Ukraine when they gave up their nuclear weapons. They saw what happened to Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. So North Korea you know, it says it commits to denuclearization, but it's never going to happen. It certainly wouldn't happen on any conceivable terms we could, uh, we could live with. And the administration, for, for its part, has refused to negotiate about something less. And I think that's the real question. And we're at a point where we've now had two summits. The last one broke up, really, over this question. And the, the question facing the United States and North Korea is, can they construct a, a deal that wouldn't solve the problem once and for all, but would put a ceiling on it and manage it? And the, the analogy that comes to mind, as bizarre as it is, is the Iran agreement, hmm. in the sense that even though Iran didn't have nuclear weapons, it established certain ceilings, certain limits. So we, we'd be talking about... A, an interim or phase-by-phase, step-by-step agreement with North Korea. And essentially, they, they, they would accept limits on nuclear and missile capabilities. They would agree to a degree of uh, verification, of inspection. And in return, 
we would we and the South Koreans and others would give them uh, greater uh, economic assistance, greater access to the global market. That would be the initial deal. There could be subsequent deals. In principle, the working towards denuclearization, although in reality they'd probably never get there. And the real question is, would this administration accept such an approach in principle, and then could the various sides work out such an approach in practice? While I have you and while we're talking about North Korea, I can't help but but wonder about the Otto Warmbier story. And it still gets wisps of whispers every now and then. Uh, to refresh the listener's memory here, Otto Warmbier was the 22-year-old, 21-year-old who entered North Korea with a guided tour group around Christmas of 2015. Um, a few weeks later, he was arrested at Pyongyang International Airport about to leave North Korea and accused of attempting to steal a poster from his hotel, and he was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment with hard labor, shockingly um, returned to the United States in a vegetative state a year later and uh, died shortly after. Um, Assuming some modicum of rationality by even irrational players, why would you torture a pawn like that, a valuable asset in in that negotiations? You've seen it before with other people that... Uh, North Korea has detained as kind of guests of the regime. What happened? Why haven't we heard more? Why hasn't anybody unpacked it? Why has it largely been forgotten in the in the theatrics between Trump and Kim? Okay, here we're venturing into the area of conjecture. Uh, I find it well, hard. No one to... is real. No one has really commented on it other than his family. Well, there's a reason. And you think I this think... would have been a make or break thing? I think that's this. I was going to get to that second, but I'll get to it first. Uh, my sense is is that for the administration, this is inconvenient, that they are trying to conduct diplomacy. What happened to this young man, he was essentially murdered in North Korea, even though he didn't die until he returned to the United States, almost like we had the same problem we have with the Saudis, with uh, Mr. Khashoggi, the, the journalist. If you're trying to maintain a relationship with a with a individual or with a, with a government, this becomes extremely uh, inconvenient. So my sense is we are essentially agreeing to look the other way and not to drill down on it. Which brings me to my first point. North Korea is not a society known for freelancing. It's inconceivable to me that this young man would have been picked up, charged, arrested, and imprisoned without uh, approval from the top. Now, whether he the, the torture, the physical treatment of him somehow got out of hand, that somebody uh, miscalculated what would happen, that I can't rule out. That's a, a possibility because I don't understand why this would help them. That this seems to me, if they if they arrested him and imprisoned him uh, as some part of a trade or for some type of leverage, what they did uh, undermined that position because they ended up with no leverage uh, and they they hurt their reputation even more. Though again, we've to some extent left them off the hook. Donald Trump did chime in this year, President Trump. He did cause some controversy in saying that he believed the word of Kim Jong-un, the totalitarian leader of North Korea, that he was not responsible for Warmbier's death. And his parents were livid in response to that. And I, I do wonder why that dissipated, why that's not a bigger stink. I mean, we hear about Khashoggi, and effectively Trump says the same thing, that I believe um, – I believe that the, the Saudi kingdom and that this was uh, these were rogue agents who just kind of run amok. You cannot imagine in either scenario that freelancers would just go off and, and, and do something like this, that it, it kind of flies in the face of everything we know about these two societies. Absolutely. And he also says he believes Mr. Putin, 
when Mr. Putin says things, uh, whether it's more recently about Venezuela or about what he didn't do in the 2016 uh, election. There's a pattern here where the president tends to put his faith in the words of these authoritarian or dictatorial uh, figures, and the president seems committed or so committed to his own foreign policy uh, that he seems unwilling to look at any evidence to, to the contrary. And it seems to me it's bad foreign policy in addition to just simply being morally uh, truly objectionable. You know, and there's another thing you brought up in, in Putin. It seems like your ears are burning. Uh, a muted response in reaction to what happened in London with the agents who went there and uh, attempted to poison with Novichok. Absolutely. No, this again, ex- there's a pattern. You, you, Robin, you're exactly there's – there's a pattern here. And But do we all I, just kind of twiddle our thumbs and say, well, that's just real politic at this point, that that's just the guy taking well, the world that he inherited, not the world that, that, it goes Obama beyond that. and his idealists wanted to envision? It goes beyond that. I mean, take 1989 when the Chinese cracked down on students in Tiananmen Square. The Bush administration criticized the Chinese for what they did, but they didn't they didn't allow it to destroy the relationship. And at various times in our history, we've had presidents who have been critical, say we were critical of the Soviets during the Cold War for the treatment of dissidents and so forth, yet we didn't shut down. Uh, the arms control negotiations. We basically were able to have a policy that balanced elements of principle with with pragmatism. And that seems to me to be the the formula that we, we can and should be able to multitask in our foreign policy. So I think this moral whitewashing, this closing of our eyes to these acts of, uh, of real violence, uh, either against Americans or citizens of, of their own country or other countries. Uh, it's both inexcusable in the moral sense and truly uh, unnecessary in the foreign policy sense. Well, you could posture and say there's salutary neglect in the UK example or in the example of Khashoggi. He's not a full American citizen, but this was an American citizen. This was a youngster. This was, a, this was an accomplished student who graduated from UVA and he went off and did something. And if Iran had done this, do you wonder what the reaction would have been? If a, if a regime that we put in our crosshairs kind of squarely in that region that Pompeo put on, on warning. Um, and it just makes it very hard to be consistent across the board if you provide a separate set of, of consequences for Pyongyang or, or Moscow or Tehran. Uh, you're not going to get an argument from me on this. Uh, <laughs> we are being inconsistent, which undermines any moral authority we may we may have. And again... It says to me that the president is so committed to his pursuit of his denuclearization agreement with North Korea or regime change, you know, in this in Iran or support, this unconditional support for the Saudis or this look the other way with Putin, that for various reasons in each case, one can break down what appear to be his motives. He's more than willing to close his eyes to things that uh, they are they are doing. And again, it's I, at the risk of repeating myself, it, it fails both the morality test, but also the foreign policy test. I, I, don't, I don't believe it's necessary or useful uh, for us to look the other way when countries do abhorrent uh, things. And again, we can we can multitask with them. We can still have elements of a normal relationship, but they ought to hear the criticism when they do unacceptable things, and they ought to pay a price for that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. The veteran diplomat served uh, under both Bush administrations. He was a principal advisor to State Secretary Colin Powell 
uh, in Bush 43. And in the early 90s, Dr. Haas was a senior director for Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council under President George H.W. Bush. I, I do wonder, um, within the Republican Party and foreign policy, uh, you know, you think about the, 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 the gray beards and the elders who used to chime in on things like this, like Brent Scowcroft and George Shultz. Uh, what, what happened to that world and kind of coming in and, and, and maybe, you know, pulling the chain on this president and saying, no, 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 you need to be much tougher with Vladimir Putin. No, you cannot genuflect before Pyongyang. No, you can't be just so, you know, nakedly mercenary with these other regimes that are doing these things. I mean, there isn't exactly unanimity on Capitol Hill or around, um, you know, this foreign policy, whether it involves Yemen or Saudi Arabia, there is a fissure among Republicans. There absolutely is. And quite honestly, it's disappointing that more Republican voices have not been raised uh, against the foreign policy of this president, which in many cases represents an enormous departure from the foreign policies that I believe have served us well in modern times, uh, in particular, the 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush, but also elements of some other presidents, President Ford, President uh, Nixon, the 43rd president, George uh, W. Bush. So Donald Trump, in that sense, is not pursuing a traditional foreign policy. He's distanced himself from our allies. He's cozied up to way too many uh, authoritarian figures. He's a harsh opponent of, uh, of, of free trade. He's not talking about the promotion of democracy or human rights. So he is not pursuing anything that is, for the most part, recognizable uh, as the sort of foreign policy Republican presidents have pursued when in office. And I find it disappointing. And I say this as someone who is still a registered Republican. I find it uh, frustrating and disappointing that more voices uh, have not been raised against him. I think the biggest uh, act of omission here is, is in Congress where Republicans in Congress have largely, and both the House and the Senate, have largely followed this president in lockstep, not entirely, but largely. And I think that's, a, that's just, it's just short-sighted in terms of uh, the, the national interest as well as the political interest. And you saw Senator Richard Lugar just passed away, the former senator. Sure. There was another voice who would kind of come in and maybe uh, be an independent thinker when it came to foreign policy and would reach across the aisle for some sort of unanimity. Absolutely. Uh, Dick Luger was exactly, we saw John McCain. Uh, some of the people you mentioned are getting up there in, in age. Brent Scowcroft has not, been, uh, has not been well. But there's also a younger generation of people who I believe should be out there more critical of this uh, president. And you know, look, American foreign policy has largely succeeded for 75 years because it enjoyed pretty robust bipartisan support. And we're entering a period now that worries me. It's not just Republicans falling off, uh, but also Democrats. And uh, I worry that uh, in the far left of the Democratic Party, you see support for the Maduro regime in Venezuela. You see uh, equally intense opposition to free trade. You see equally intense opposition to American uh, military deployments abroad. So uh, I worry that large elements of the post-World War II foreign policy consensus that, again, I believe have served this country for the most part, obviously there are exceptions, but for the most part fairly well, uh, I worry that that consensus is beginning to fade. Richard Haas, did your pupils dilate much when you saw this this news that the Trump administration was considering bringing John Kerry, former state secretary, up <laughs> on charges? Uh, I don't take things like that uh, seriously. That's that's in the that's in the realm of uh, the politics of theater, and uh, it's this is a, this president very much uh, for him the best defense is a good offense, 
And if I got that right. And so I just see this as a way of, of going on the attack. As many people pointed out, it was pretty rich that an administration that had elements of which, including the national security advisor at the time, Mr. Mr. Flynn, talking to the Russians about what uh, we would or would not do with sanctions uh, once they were in power, it's pretty rich for them to be running around accusing uh, others in the United States of doing things with foreign governments. By the way, is that even possible? Doesn't diplomatic immunity internally extend to someone like a former state secretary who was probably acting in good faith? Was it, unless you can prove treasonous activity? Well, it's not a question of treason. The Logan Act, as I understand it, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but it basically means that you can't carry out your own independent foreign policy. But there's nothing that precludes you from meeting with certain people. John Kerry uh, is, an, is a private citizen. And uh, you know all former secretaries of state, be it Henry Kissinger, Madeleine Albright, John Kerry, Jim Baker, regularly, uh, frequently meet with, with foreign visitors, as do people such as myself. So the idea that he would be having these conversations with the Iranians or anyone else in principle is, is just, uh, that's just, that's just normal. Let's uh, travel down to South America. You did mention Venezuela. Venezuela, let's remind everybody, OPEC member Venezuela has the largest oil reserves and the eighth largest natural gas reserves on the planet. It's non-conventional oil deposits, whether you're talking about extra heavy crude oil, bitumen and tar sands. They're about equal to the world's reserves of conventional oil. And yet it is a collapsed economy. There's rampant unemployment, hyperinflation, people gathering at the border, strange arbitrages and things like toilet paper and and gasoline at the government price being taken over the border to Colombia, people trying to flee, mass malnourishment. How is it that this regime is still in power? How does it have any truck with the military? The regime is still in power because it has uh, one strong foreign backing, Cuban intelligence and military forces, some Russian economic and military help, enormous amount of Chinese economic help. So all that has done something for it. Second of all, it has its own military forces and paramilitary forces. Uh, It seems to have made common cause with a lot of people in the drug and criminal business. So they're running around with guns who are more than happy to live with the regime so long as they can carry out their, their business. Plus, until at least recently, the opposition in Venezuela was was both uh, weak and, and divided. And now I would say it's more united, but it's still relatively weak. So it's the combination of the internal and external supports for the regime uh, are allow put it in a position of relative strength against uh, essentially uh, unarmed uh, opposition. Now, the, the rumor, I don't know if it's been corroborated, with the, was that Maduro was about to hop a flight and leave for Cuba or another place of safe refuge, but Vladimir Putin told him to get back off and get back to the palace. Yeah, I heard that too. I I didn't know if that was true or the United States was engaging or the the Trump administration was engaging in a little bit of what we call in the Russian context disinformatia. And it was a way of sowing some uh, insecurity and dissent inside the the military in Venezuela, which is, at the end of the day, the the key institution which will determine whether Maduro survives or not uh, politically, and by suggesting that Maduro was thinking of fleeing uh, the sinking ship, that maybe the other rats would would flee him. So I didn't know whether to take that at face value or just to see that as kind of something we were putting out there in order to stir the pot. Is it indeed a strategic redoubt if you kind of imagine a a, a bit of a mini Cold War reconstituted again in the hemisphere for Russia and China to have 
Maduro still in place as a thorn in the side of the United States? Uh, a little bit, uh, in the sense that, again, they're they're pushing at a place. I think the Chinese, less for geopolitical reasons and more their normal uh, economics. The Russians, though, are clearly being mischievous, and I think it's their way of saying, you do things in our backyard we don't like. Well, two can play that, uh, that game, and it obviously ties us uh, down a little bit. So, uh, and I think, you know, the problem is we don't have a great hand here in the sense that you know, we're not going to do a military invasion. People need to remember that Venezuela is twice the size of Iraq. There's an awful lot of people who are armed. Uh, an American military invasion there would be extraordinarily difficult and costly and prolonged. So it just doesn't make sense. The, we'd, we'd isolate ourselves. It would be a, a real gift to, to Maduro. He could then be the hero against the, the Yankee invaders. So we don't have a great option. We've got all these sanctions in place. But I think what this administration is learning to its frustration is that sanctions aren't a panacea. Sanctions, uh, we, we try them against North Korea, we try them against Iran, we try them against Venezuela. And sanctions can do some things for you, but they can rarely, rarely if ever, solve a problem uh, for you. So what we are finding is that uh, sanctions aren't delivering there. We don't have very many uh, diplomatic options there, unlike, say, in North Korea or Iran. We don't have a military option. So it's, uh, I'm sad to say it's quite possible that Maduro could survive for some time. Now, this is literally a starving country. You would think it would be eminently bribable, right? Like, yeah, it's, we'll give amnesty to those military generals who want to leave and keep some money in the Miami skyline. You get to eat, you get, you know, become a turncoat and it'll be worth your while in the long run. And yet it's not. Well, that, but it may come to something like that, some combination of penalties against individuals plus promises, uh, incentives for them to, to churn. I would expect that's part of our long-term strategy. And the opposition can help there. They can tell foreigners who have lent money to the regime that we will, uh, we will only pay you back if you pull back from support for this regime. And the Chinese and others may, may think about that. But that's the sort of thing I, uh, I would argue this will probably require. But let me just add one other point since we're talking about Venezuela. Just imagine, Robin, we're successful. And a day, a week, a month, a year from now, Mr. Maduro does hop on that plane to Havana or Moscow or wherever. That's when the second phase of the challenge begins. And as difficult as this first phase is of, of getting him out of power, the second phase of rebuilding the country will be just as difficult in a, in a different way, conceivably even more difficult. Three or four million people have already left. The oil sector is in real disrepair. There's no public health system anymore. Agricultural production is way down. There's no currency that's worth the paper it is printed on. Uh, you've got multiple political institutions. You've got thousands and tens of thousands of people with guns roaming around. To basically stabilize Venezuela, and then physically, politically, economically rebuild this country, this society, this economy will be an enormous undertaking, one that will take not just months, but I would argue years or even in some areas, decades. And that is something the United States is going to have to pool its resources with neighbors, probably with Europeans and others. But we're looking at something uh, enormous in its magnitude. Now, this isn't something that Colombia and Brazil and Panama are bracing for as well, that it's not just the United States and the free world on the hook for this, that it's a, it's a regional quagmire for them. You have uh, borders and a national security concern for them. Absolutely. And they're the ones, you mentioned the Brazilians and uh, Colombia, they are bearing the brunt of the refugee burden. 
uh, you know, the numbers are, are high. And again, somewhere between two and a half, three and four million Venezuelans have left. They're continuing to leave at the rate of at least 50,000 or more uh, a month. And most of them are ending up in the neighboring countries. So the, the, they're bursting at the seams. And so they, they will, in some ways, out of necessity, be part of any, of any solution. But we have to get to that point. You know, Richard, growing up in Miami in the 1980s, the the Cuban exile community always uh, uh, romanced this idea that if we build a wall against the leftist creep in in Nicaragua, right, we we didn't get to win at the Bay of Pigs, but there's this rematch through Nicaragua, and we win that, that'll be the step in kind of the downfall of of Fidel Castro. Of course, Fidel Castro passed away a few years ago, and he survived, what, eight or nine presidents. But there's also this idea in South Florida that if Venezuela, like when Marco Rubio goes and and invades against uh, Maduro and um, kind of opines about regime change, that if Venezuela falls, there's no way for the stub Fidel Castro regime and Raul Castro to survive in Cuba, that you're going to see a spring there as well. I don't buy that. Uh, Venezuela would have survived for quite a while, I think, under Mr. Chavez, who was a much more capable politician than is Mr. Uh, Maduro. And And Cuba, in any case, has its own dynamics. There's not a domino theory that if Venezuela falls, Cuba necessarily uh, falls. The one thing Cuba will have to figure out is where to get its oil from. And Venezuela has been an important source of subsidized or free uh, oil for the uh, Cubans. But uh, I don't see the Cuban regime on on the uh, edge as much as I'd like to see uh, a peaceful uh, evolution there towards uh, democracy. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, in the 10 minutes we have left with you, I'd love for you to, to chime in. We'll also leave, we call it open skate, free skate at this point where you can talk about anything you like. But before that, <laughs> there is this whisper in diplomatic circles that many people are content in countries that are not satisfied with the regime in Washington, D.C., to kind of wait it out, that there is more than a nominal chance that Trump and his tariffs and his biases and his proclivities and things that he's willing to overlook will be a thing of the past come January of 2021. Well, there's three things wrong with that theory. One is there's still close to two years between now and January 21. Two is there's a decent chance Mr. Trump will be reelected for a second uh, four years. Where, you know, people say he only has 43, 44, 45 percent of the vote. But one, it, as we learned in the last election, it depends where that vote is. Hmm. And second of all, we have elections in this country, not referenda. Uh, once we have a Democratic uh, candidate, then it will be Mr. Trump against him or her. And we'll, we'll see how that plays. And perhaps most important, uh, I think elements of Trumpism predated Mr. Trump, which is why he got elected in the first place. And elements of Trumpism will probably continue to be in existence after him. Uh, You'll have concerns about immigration. You'll have concerns about uh, trade. Indeed, the concerns about jobs will probably go up when new technologies kick in that threaten a lot of existing jobs uh, because of artificial intelligence or autonomous vehicles or or, uh, Robotics. You, after Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, you had enormous fatigue, to use that word, with uh, various types of large-scale military interventions. So it's quite possible that elements of Donald Trump, maybe minus the Twitter and minus some of the coarseness, uh, but some, some of those features uh, will surely be in place either because the, the next president will, he or she will embody them, or you will see it in the Congress or we'll see it in, in our society. So you know, this idea that somehow 
if and when he leaves the White House, suddenly we're going to go back to where we were and everything's going to be just fine again. That seems to me to simply be a real misreading of reality. What's being short shrifted out there in the headlines? I mean, clearly something huge just happened in Sudan, which again would have been unthinkable five, six months ago with regime change. You have South Africa and the ANC's hegemony in question. Um, of course, Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is just so massive. It's impossible to just, you know, I could I could spend an hour on Nigeria. We could go to Kenya. We could talk about, you know, Mozambique and the floods there and and debt forgiveness. What what should be talked about more in the headlines right now globally that isn't? Well, I got a long list of things, but that's probably what you would expect from someone who has the job I do uh, as president <laughs> of the Council on Foreign Relations. Talking about Africa, one thing is when you look at Africa, but also South Asia, those are the two parts of the world that are on course for massive population increases. Uh, lots of the rest of the world is getting older, populations are shrinking, but not in South Asia, not India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and certainly not in sub-Saharan Africa. And there's real questions because of new technologies and because of climate change, whether there's going to be the land and the jobs to support them. And if not, you're looking at enormous humanitarian crises, immig you know, immigration flows, uh, refugee flows, and so forth. That's one issue. Second, obviously, is climate change. Climate change is an example of a problem that I've characterized as a slow motion crisis. Hmm. It's happening gradually. And because of that, we tend not to be as sensitive to it as we ought to. There's, there's not the sufficient sense of urgency. So even if tomorrow we suddenly changed all of our behaviors, there's already a lot of problem baked into the cake. And the answer is obviously, or the reality is obviously, we're not going to change our behavior tomorrow. And the problem will get worse before it gets even worse. So uh, I think people just simply underestimate the impact that climate change will have on the, the quality of lives in the United States or around the world. I give you a third issue, hmm. uh, disease. You know, we obviously worry about uh, infectious disease, Ebola, uh, flu, you know, you now have more and more bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. But the big epidemic around the world is something we don't talk about, is what is called non-communicable diseases, non-infectious disease, diseases to do with lifestyle, with sedentary lifestyles, with diabetes, uh, diseases, cancers caused by smoking, diseases from alcoholism, uh, uh, diabetes, so forth. These are the diseases that uh, we're seeing massive increases around the world. You have countries like India where you have starvation side by side with, with diabetes and obesity. And these are the diseases that are really jacking up healthcare costs around the world, where uh, people are first, they're, they're forced out of the workforce early, and then the care requirements are a real drain on economies. And this is, this is a, to me, a, a real challenge for the world economically, as well as in the physical sense, and you simply don't see it talked about much. Is it that the Western diet is is being expanded to people, especially like you look at China, all the millions of people being brought out of poverty who are eating meat and um, processed foods, um, you know, multinational food companies are finally selling their products in, in nations that really never saw these things 25 years ago? Partially that, partially you have more urban, you know, people have moved from agricultural and rural areas to jobs that are services or factories in urban areas. So people are getting less exercise. As middle-class lives become more available to people, they're, they're using public and private transport more. So lifestyles are changing in ways that people on one level welcome, but ironically enough, are not always uh, the best for their health. 
And it looks like the Trump administration has a new defense secretary in the hopper. There's been a vacancy for some time after Mad Dog Mattis stepped down or was was pushed out after a disagreement. Did it surprise you that yeah, – I think you talked about it on our show before – all the ambassadorial vacancies. Sure. All, all of the areas where – I don't even know if we have someone in South Korea right now where you can't take anything for granted in terms of – uh, diplomatic manpower in this administration. Yeah, I, I believe we do have somebody in, in South Korea. Uh, he was moved. He was going to be ambassador to Australia. And then at the last minute, he got he pivoted towards Seoul. And I think he's there. I could be wrong. Uh, but we're still shorthanded in, in embassies. And we're still shorthanded at the State Department. We're still shorthanded at the NSC. I think it's part of uh, former Secretary of State Tillerson's unfortunate legacy. And I think it's also part of this administration's lack of respect for career professionals and for process. And what worries me is we not only don't have enough people who are experienced in these jobs, but you don't have a particularly orderly process by which foreign policy is being made and and implemented, but way too much of an ad hoc style that uh, might be something the president is comfortable with. But as uh, we, you know, we teach in school, yeah, what, what the boss, the boss shouldn't, shouldn't always get what he wants. He should get what he needs. Quickly, who most has his ear right now? Is it uh, Bolton? Is it Pompeo? Oh, I on think, foreign policy concerns. I would say it's the two of them plus uh, Jared Kushner. Some combination of the three of them seem to be the, the closest to this president. Plus, he has his own network of people, whether they appear on a, a certain television station or just friends of the, uh, the president. This is the most informal presidency, the least structured presidency that we've seen in modern times. Do you think uh, foreign policy writ large is going to be a broad, compelling subject in the election next year? Is it uh, polling that way? No. Uh, so you have this, uh, if you look at the Democratic candidates, what animates them is not, for the most part, questions of foreign policy. It's questions of wealth, distribution, climate change, taxation. But basic questions of foreign policy uh, will probably not animate the election, which is in some ways uh, too bad because we're electing not a, a prime minister. We are electing the next president and the next commander in chief. One of the things we're going to try to do from where I sit, the Council on Foreign Relations, is to see that citizens and see that journalists around the country have access to the foreign policy information and analysis they need so they can ask those questions of the candidates. Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, veteran diplomat, served under both Bush administrations. I cannot thank you enough. You are always welcome on this show. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy it. Likewise. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this program on NPR.org, the wonderful NPR One app, which I cannot drive without. And of course, NPR member station, our home base, 88.9 WCVE News. Subscribe on iTunes at FullDRadio.com and give us all sorts of likes. We are multilateral citizens of the world, really fond of bilateral talks. We speak softly but carry a big mic. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 